This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform for creating a blog, website, portfolio, or online store. To create your own space, visit squarespace.com and save 10% by using offer code TREK11. And also by Audible, offering more than 150,000 titles for iPhone, iPad, and iPod, Android, Kindle, Windows Phone, plus Mac or PC. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Plus, if you'd like to support our programming personally, visit trek.fm slash donate to get our alien badges and art prints, featuring original illustration by Tobu Ushi. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. these books? I thought I'd take some light reading, in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, our Star Trek books and comics show. I'm Christopher Jones, and with me once again, as he is every week, is my esteemed co-host, Matthew Rushing, who is normally really, really into Star Trek, but Matthew, I have to ask you this week, how's progress going on that Doctor Who 50th anniversary theatrical showing prep you're doing there? Well, Chris, uh, it is going very, very well. I'm in uh, season seven now, which is the last season that they've had, and um, before the the special, uh, I'm on episode nine, I think. So I have a few more to go, and then I'll be done, which is it's quite sad because it means I won't just be able to come home and plop myself in front of the television and be taken away in a TARDIS. <laughs> um, you know, uh, I guess you're, but. It, I'll be ready. Yeah, I guess you're watching these maybe a little more rapidly than you otherwise would because you're trying to get them all in before the theatrical showing, right? It is quite true. I mean, I am watching uh, very, very quickly. Um, I think the only other show that I may have watched quicker was before I started grad school, I had about a week or so, maybe like a week and a half um, before school started, and I bought... And I, because I hadn't seen it since it originally had aired, uh, every season of Voyager, and I watched all of the episodes of Voyager in about a week and a half. So the entire series, I pretty much wow. Yes, wow. yes. I thought I thought so that was like I was impressive when I watched all of Enterprise in like three weeks, maybe. But wow, that's yeah, yeah. That was ridiculous. It was like. Because I didn't have anything else to do at that point. I didn't have a job and I wasn't doing anything. So, uh, yeah, I watched, you know, a disc or so a night and, and yeah. Well, so I have to say... Little, I will never do that again. I have to say, I've had some people tell me that we're sometimes too hard on Voyager, that the continuity elements that we look for are there and that we're missing them. If you watched the entire series in a week and a half, I think you would have noticed the continuity if it was really there. It's true. I would have, um, and that's why I can firmly say it's really not. So I can, I can, I can fix that argument. Um, it's, it's. I mean, there are things, obviously. Of course, in there are some things. Yes, do get continued. Yes, yes. yes. Uh, I mean, it just alone, Paris's character, for yeah. for instance, yeah. uh, does a lot of growth. Um, or gets a lot of growth in in the series and in a few others, but on a whole, 
the the continuity of the series i mean the ship alone um looks better when it comes into the you know alpha quadrant than it did when it left so that's got to be a problem that's right thanks to the fancy borg armor that seven decorated the ship with. oh well yes i mean that's yeah of course you know you make a deal with the borg you get fancy armor that's right <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of Voyager, Matthew, let's jump into news here because our first news item today is about Voyager. And this is about our friend Kirsten Beyer's book that's going to be coming out at the start of next year that we've been talking about a little bit here. And we finally have a bit more information about it because she just did a reading at Shore Leave. And I'm not sure if she read to the rabbit or the night or who she read to at Shore Leave, but, but she did reveal some things about the book. Yeah, very exciting one. She says uh, she's seen the cover. There's a version of it. It should be coming out on uh, StarTrek.com soon with the blurb about the book. Um, And the scene that she chose was uh, the first time that she had ever written Picard, where Picard and Janeway finally meet face-to-face, which is going to be, I think, a great scene. She said one of the the fun things about it was that... um, uh, her and Picard have shared a lot of similar experiences, and so... um, really getting to put these two people in a room who who do have a great deal in common. I mean, um, they've both been Borgified, um, you know. I don't think Picard... Um, Picard's died uh, before, um, so is Janeway. And, in fact, uh, you know, they both met Q in the afterlife as That's well. Right. They both love hot beverages. Yes, they do. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that, that Kathy loves a nice bottle of... Uh, um, Picard's wine as well. Probably. I mean, I don't think she'd say no to that. What so. I want to see is I want to see Picard and Janeway doing shots of Aldebaran whiskey together. See, I think I think this is where they need to go to the officers' club there and just line up the shots and and see which captain's standing. We can finally, you know, seal that argument and and get it done with of who's a better captain, Janeway or Picard. Well, I have to tell you, I just have a feeling that Janeway could hold her liquor better than Picard could. You know, I'd say that, but Picard also comes from a wine-growing family, and I I feel like him and his brother have probably had, you know, plenty of bottles of wine at one time or another, and uh, I just feel like he he knows how to hold his liquor. Maybe so. Uh, But I think this is, I I think we, uh, you know, if, if Kirsten can't get it in this book, Protectors, I think she should go in her next book, which she says she's already working on, Acts of Contrition. In fact, she said her first um, draft of that is due to be complete mid-December, and so she is hard at work on some Voyager books, which, Chris, if this is any indication, it looks like maybe 2014 could be a double Voyager year for us in books, which that hasn't happened in quite a long time. No, hopefully it will signal uh, a pickup in all the series that may- maybe they will start to bring us new material from across the entire Star Trek universe a little bit more so than they have over the past couple of years. I would hope so. You know, I feel like that um, Pocket really should learn. And, and, and you know, this last year was so TOS heavy at the beginning. Um, I, I think, I, I mean, I personally as a fan got a little bit weary of, of reading it. And um, I, I feel like if you do it right, you can, you can have... Um, you know, they only publish one major book a, a year, but with the series that they have, I feel like you can get at least one, if not two, of each of those series throughout the year if you just kind of space them out. 
And of course, with them doing the eBooks as well, it gives you a great uh, mixture again. So um, I, I do hope you're right. I hope they are signaling this. I, I think it would be great for the fans. Um, and 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 for me, uh, as we talked, you know, to David about revelations and dust, when you have to wait so long for books to come out, you, you really do start to forget some of the storylines right. because you read them, say, ten, fifteen years ago, and it, it's, you know. It's difficult to remember all the threads, and even David, who we're going to talk about tonight, he's actually picked up some of the threads in his latest book from the series in Deep Space Nine, because he's usually one of those characters, and uh, it jogs around in that murky um, brain of mine that, oh, oh, that was a storyline, yes, like 10 years ago, and so I just would love to see... I'd like to see a little bit more of a push mm-hmm. when it when it yeah, comes yeah, yeah. to the series yeah. and to making sure that the fans of each series get their books at least once a year, if not twice, um, because, uh, you know, if you don't carry on the series well enough, and I think this is really kind of what happened to Deep Space Nine, it just kind of died. And now that they really do, I feel like in some ways want to continue it, they're having a hard time. You have to bring it all back and it's tough. So... Yeah, I think the audience is there. It's just a matter of Pocket deciding that they're going to actually invest the money into the books, lining up the authors, getting the books published. Well, and it looks, uh, I mean, as we saw from last week's discussion, I think we had in the news um, about the layout of this uh, this next year for the books, I think it looks good. There does seem to be a very nice um, delegation of series throughout the entire year. And then, of course, with the ebooks, kind of um, every other month or whatnot mm-hmm. as well. So it looks like we are going to get a banner year for, for Trek books. And, and for that, I'm pretty thankful. Yeah, me too. Well, one thing that's going to be part of a banner year, apparently, Matthew, and we just had, you know, this is great what Kirsten's doing here with Protectors and Acts of Contrition I'm not quite sure what Kirk and Spock are doing on the cover of this other book we have today, though, called Fun with Kirk and Spock. It looks like it could be the cover of some fanfic or something. I, what is going on here? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Chris, I love this. Um, you know, I, I saw it actually on our friend Dayton's blog, and then I, I went to the catalog, Simon and & Schuster, and, you know, they've had some really funny... Uh, parodies of, of the old Dick and Jane books yeah. from uh, the 30s. And, and this one is really going to go where no book has gone before, where no parody has gone before. It's going to be fun with Kirk and Spock. And yes, the cover here, um, it'll be in the Enhanced Podcast. Um, look <laughs> if you must. It, it, it may hurt your eyes. Um, but it is pretty hysterical. Uh, Kirk and Spock seem to be, um, well college flatmates uh and they are pursuing a a football or or soccer ball and and they look like they walked straight out of the 1950s um and so it is really really a funny cover and uh it looks like it'll be a very funny parody of those dick and jane books i'm not sure i mean do you think in, in the scenario kirk is dick and and spock is jane probably right I think so, yeah. And, and the ball is okay. spot. Yes, yes, there you go. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I, I'm curious to see. I wish we had more than just the cover. I'm really curious to see what's going on inside this book. But this is, um, with all the Star Trek stuff that's coming out now, 
beyond the novels. Of course, we've got Larry Stiller cartography coming out. We've got Keith's The Klingon Art of War coming out. We've got all these nine uh, novel books, kind of reference books coming out. I never expected to see Fine with Kirk and Spock. Well, I didn't either, Chris. I mean, um, <laughs> when, and, and I, I think it's one of those things that it, it's going to be a great novelty book to, to get that Trek fan. You know, you're going to see it uh, in line at like uh, Barnes and Noble or something, and you're going to pick it up for your friend. Um, now, unfortunately, this isn't going to be coming out. At least it looks like it's not going to be coming out until April. And so th- this is, won't be something you'll be able to get somebody for Christmas, but it'll be something that uh, you might want to pick up for a friend's birthday, something like that. Um, especially that Trek fan in your life. This is this is pretty funny looking. Did you just say unfortunately or fortunately when you said that? I was... Well, unfortunately, <laughs> I mean, I would I would think this would be the perfect gift, I'm you kidding. know, for Christmas. Yes, you yes. know, just to to put in a stocking it would. It'd for be a somebody, good, yeah, or... like a stocking stuffer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, although we have talked about you know um, a very Klingon Christmas coming out soon, and so that is a great book to be getting somebody for Christmas. Uh, you know, for that Trek fan, and that is out. You can you can get that on Amazon right now, uh, which it's only ten dollars. So, but uh, this is another one. I just I saw this and I thought, oh goodness, this would be so funny to give to somebody um, as a like you know, kind of like a gag gift, like you would give it to them and like. Well, here, happy birthday, and that's like what you give them, and they think that that's all you got them, and you're like, oh, thanks, this is great. Everybody just thinks I'm that Trek jackass, and then they give you the real present, you know. So, um, no, this looks like it's going to be a lot of fun. You're you're hoping I'll make that the title of the show, aren't you? That Trek Trek jackass. jackass. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that would be really funny. (laughs) You know, oh, maybe we can just add that for the other side of the book. That's where we'll put it. Yeah. You know, this reminds me, talking about gifts, though, you know what I wish they would do? What would make a great gift? Because I've been looking for these. I wish they would republish all the original James Blish adaptations of the TOS episodes, like in a box set with each book. Oh, yeah. Or do them as ebooks because I've been wanting to go back and read those, and I cannot get my hands on them over here. And they're not available in ebook mm. format. So you have to kind of look around and find them used and then order them from different places. Mm. I wish they would reissue those. That would be a great gift. Yeah, I'm surprised that they haven't. You know, I do think, um, you know, they Trek books actually on a whole have been really, really good about having backstock in ebook. Now, as we have both experienced, um, those aren't always the best formatted when we were reading um, Keith's um demons of air and darkness and so but at least you do have them available and so uh, i am kind of surprised that they haven't gone back and and put those because i I do think that they'd be popular um there were plenty of fans that really enjoyed those um books and uh i think you know uh, lots of new fans would would be interested in getting into those i think i might be mistaken but i believe that the james blish books were reprinted in the uk maybe in the 90s but I, I mm-hmm. haven't seen any U.S. editions in a long time. So anyway, I'd like to see those. Well, that's all we have in news, Matthew. But before we jump into the feature, where we are going to be joined today by David Mack. 
to talk about a ceremony of losses, let's tell everyone about our sponsor, Squarespace. Your support of our sponsor is really important for making it possible for us to bring literary treks to you every week. And Squarespace is the best hosting you're going to find anywhere on the internet. It's a combined hosting and CMS that makes it simple for you to create your own blog, website, portfolio, or an online store. It's incredibly easy to use, which is why I personally have been a Squarespace user for it's probably about seven years now, long before Trek FM came around, which, by the way, is built upon Squarespace. I use it for my personal site, for client sites as well. It allows us here at Trek FM to focus on actually creating the podcasts for you and getting them out to you and not having to worry about spending our time you know, coding the website. There are really three main elements about Squarespace that really stand out to us here at Trek FM. And Matthew, the first of those is design. And I know that's something that you, just like me, care a lot about. Yeah, Chris, it, it really is. Um, you know, there's nothing more frustrating, I, I feel like, than going to a website and just uh, being overloaded with, with too much stuff. Um, you know, I work with um, uh, university websites a lot with my job. And I, I got to tell you, they tend to be terrible um, with trying to figure things out, where things are. And that's one of the things I, I do love about Squarespace is it, the, the, they really do care about design. So their templates are extremely clean and allow your content, whatever you're trying to put out there, whether it is that store or blog or, or any of those things, it really gets to be the focus of the website. Um, and then, you know, for me personally, being a blogger, one of the great things about Squarespace is your accounts are, are easily connected. You can connect that Twitter account, Facebook, LinkedIn, Pinterest. I mean, you name it, you can link it and you can publish whatever it is, where you'd like, when you'd like it to be out there um, for people who are following you. That's a great way to connect uh, the content that you have on your own website or your own uh, portfolio, your own store over on Facebook, because, you know, let's face it, Facebook, that's where everybody is, Twitter and Facebook. And if you share something on Facebook, it's going to get spread around and that's really going to drive traffic into your website. And so it's wonderful that Squarespace makes it so easy for you to get that information over there in front of everyone. And then the other point that I really love is the responsive design, which is really, really important. Matthew, I know you're on the go a lot. You're on the train. You commute on the train I as well. Am. So you, you do a lot of reading on your iPad and your iPhone. So I know responsive design is something that you really appreciate. Yeah, it is really, really nice, Chris. Um, you know, there's nothing worse than going to a website and everything looks off kilter on your device, whether it's your iPhone, iPad, or whatnot. And you get on there and it's hard to navigate Squarespace does this awesome thing where it automatically scales so everything looks beautiful, whatever device you're using, from computer all the way down to iPhone or uh, Android phone if, if that's what you've chosen to go with. So um, this is something that I really love because it, it really makes your website pop no matter where people are looking at it. Absolutely. Two examples of what it does are, let's say on your desktop website, you have a menu, navigation menu. If you look at that on a smartphone, you'll just get a little link at the top that says menu. And if you tap it, then you will see all the items in the menu. If you have a sidebar on your website, it'll actually flow the sidebar up underneath the main body content of your page, which makes it very, very clean, easy to read in the width of the smartphone screen. Because one thing that frustrates me on a lot of sites, like I go to ESPN a lot, for example, and the, the text becomes so, so small and you know, my eyes don't quite work as well as they used to. And so I'm always looking for ways to zoom in on that. And so responsive design really makes it very easy on your readers. 
Another feature, Matthew, that we've talked about recently a lot, because of course you're working on your Bajoran spring wine business, is the Squarespace Commerce feature. And that has Stripe integrated into Squarespace. So you get instant approval, just a 30-second merchant sign up. There's no paperwork to do. And it allows you to begin processing orders on your website, accepting credit cards, receiving money for purchases via direct deposit in just a few moments. It handles full tax and shipping rules by region for you as well. And Squarespace Commerce is now available in the U.S., the U.K., Canada, Australia, Belgium, France, Germany, Ireland, the Netherlands, and Spain. And I hear that Beta Z may be coming up soon. Matthew said they're working their way through the quadrant towards Bajor because, as we've discussed, oh, goodness. it's a sticking uh, point for you. I feel you. like we're going to get a lot of Squarespace websites devoted to Beta Z weddings. <laughs> Probably, which, of course, the, the photo album features and the slideshows will, uh, that, that are built into Squarespace will be excellent for that, right? <laughs> yes, they sure will. They really will. So whether it's a website, a blog, a portfolio for your art or your music, an online store, whatever you want to build, whatever you want to create online, you can do it very easily with Squarespace. And the best way to find out how is just to try it free for 14 days. There's no credit card required. Just go to squarespace.com, enter your name and your email address. And in a matter of moments, you will be building your own web presence using the exceptional tools of Squarespace. And plans start at just $8 per month. The pricing is fantastic. You can get unlimited for $16. And if you want to use the commerce feature, that's just $24 per month. And as a Trek FM listener, you can save 10% by using offer code TREK11. And if you choose the annual plan, you can get a free custom domain registration as well. So... Support us by trying Squarespace for free. Go to squarespace.com and get that trial. And we really thank Squarespace for their support of Literary Treks and Trek FM. Well, we're very glad to have David Mack back. As, as everybody knows, we've been going through the fall series this fall and into the winter. And David's book has, has come out recently, A Ceremony of Losses. And now this is the third of, the, of five novels making up Star Trek The Fall miniseries. And it centers around the Federation, the Typhon Pact, and then, of course, has a focus, and that is the Andorian reproductive crisis that we got a clear picture of in Dayton's book, Paths of Disharmony. And I was really glad to see this uh, come back to light. And this book features heavily some great Duke Spate and Sign characters like Julian Bashir, Ezri Dax, and uh, Shar, who we haven't seen in a while. Um, and so it was great to have them back. And we're very excited to have David on to talk about this book. David, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing pretty good. I'm uh, getting ready for the holidays, getting ready for Thanksgiving here in the U.S. and uh, planning for Christmas. Just finished writing the first book of the Star Trek Seekers series, which oh, premieres cool. next summer. We can talk about that yeah. later if you like. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, we're really excited about that. And in fact, just tonight, I uh, got back the line edits on uh, Seeker's book one from my editor, and I made the revision. So that book is now off to the copy editor. So the, the writing is officially done. We are now officially into the editing and production phase on that book. Oh, Very that's cool. great to hear. Well, David, uh, we talked. We were just talking a little bit um, before we started recording just about you know your place here in the fall uh, series and you are the the very middle of the series um, and you had the mentioned that a lot of that's right the the it's it's hump day we're recording on hump day hump day <laughs> what day David is it actually, what day is it <laughs> that's right 
Mike, 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 Mike. Um, and actually, David has you have the hump book, and so tell me one, what's it like to to have that place in the series? I mean, you've written trilogies, so you understand the importance of that uh, middle book and and what it does for the story. But what's it like to be, you know, uh, one of five writers and and to be there in the middle? Well, to be the linchpin story with this many talented writers on either side of me was extremely daunting. The series, of course, was opened by David R. George, who is a, a formidable literary talent in his own right. And then, of course, I had the double whammy of having to follow not only David R. George, but also Una McCormick, who, in addition to being a lovely human being and a, a tremendously nice lady, is also a phenomenal writer. Her way with prose is simply awe-inspiring. And uh, I've joked offline with Dayton Ward uh, that had I realized how good Una McCormick's book was going to be, I might have tried harder (laughs) on mine. (laughs) And then, of course, uh, I've also met James Swallow uh, once or twice over the years, and I know what a good writer he is. And, uh, of course, Dayton, my longtime creative partner in crime on the Vanguard series, among other projects. So I've got all of this talent uh, as a lead in and then all of these, you know, all this talent that's going to follow me. And there's a lot of pressure not to be the guy in the middle who fumbles the ball, not to be the, the weak link in the chain. I don't think any of us wanted to, to get that reputation. So there was a sense of when you're lined up with this many fellow professionals that you need to bring, your A game. It's not just like you're writing one book and it's all about you and it sinks or swims and you move on to the next one. You're cognizant of the fact that you are part of a team and that if you screw this up, you're screwing it up not just for yourself, but for the other people around you who are putting in just as much effort. Um, So in that respect, it's a little daunting. And then the flip side of that is that it's also inspiring in that we get to work together we get to plan the story together the great meta arc of the series was something that was planned in a series uh, at first with a, a couple of conference calls that were run by the editor and then later through uh, a seemingly endless cycle of emails we at one point had to develop a timeline which I took the first stab at it putting it together in a series of tables in word and then we color-coded it, and we started lining up dates and uh, events and saying, well, this book runs from this date to this date. These events in this book happen on these dates, so that if you're writing this scene in book two, you know that it happens exactly, let's say, 11 days after this event in book one. And that sort of meticulous, down-to-the, you know, fine-detail, granular planning became absolutely essential. And as a result, we were bouncing ideas off each other. We were all in constant contact, uh, talking about things like tone, uh, our sort of our visions of the characters, making sure that we didn't uh, trip each other up too badly, uh, making certain that we had smooth handoff from book to book. In particular, I was in very close contact with Una because she wrote the book immediately before mine. And she wanted to include some correspondence between Bashir and Garak in her book. And it was important that the point of view for Bashir in those letters match up with where he was going to be uh, psychologically and physically in book three. 
And then I also had to be very aware of how the events that transpire in book three set up and then pay off in books four and five. So I had a lot of uh, discussions, some of them filtered through the editor with James, uh, about how the consequences of book three might logically play out and some of them be resolved in book four. So that makes the process of writing a little bit less lonely. A lot of times you're just sort of in your little cave and you do your thing and you throw your fledgling out into the world and like work from work, you throw the egg in the air, you go fly, be free. And it smashes on the kitchen counter. Um, (laughs) So then you have a burial at sea, but uh, this was more of the teamwork type thing. That feeling of being in a writer's room, uh, which is something I've always enjoyed uh, about tie-ins and particularly these types of collaborative multi-author projects. That's that's really cool. I, I'm I've loved hearing how you know each person has kind of approached the story and, and um, you know their part of the story and hearing what it was like to collaborate and, and um, for me as as being somebody who's read a lot of tie-ins and and large series written by multiple authors, I I feel like this one is succeeding on on all the levels you need it to because each of the books feels enough like a standalone. And yet it connects enough with the the meta story that you're telling, as well as picking up on a lot of threads that have been running throughout um, the the Star Trek relaunch series for the 24th century for, you know, the last 10 years. Um, and, uh, you know, we, I, I was talking um, when we talked to David, uh, um, George, about that idea, you know, because you use a lot of the characters that were used on Deep Space Nine, and those characters haven't been seen a lot uh, in, in the past 10 years over Trek lit, they, they've popped up here and there. Um, but they've really come back, um, now and talk about for me just a little bit about having to pick up some of those threads and where those characters are, where they are in their mindset. How difficult was that for you? Because, you know, a lot of that hasn't been seen in, in, in a while. Actually, they've been seen more recently than you might believe. The Deep Space Nine relaunch or post-finale books, as they are sometimes more uh, commonly known in-house, actually were a going concern from about maybe 2001, 2002 through 2007 when my novel Warpath was published. Right. What happened was is that there were plans for sort of an ongoing, uh, elaborate, complex saga in the uh, DS9 setting, but the editor who had the creative vision for that, Marco Palmieri, was part of the great bloodletting that happened in 2008 when the financial crisis shook the United States and the rest of the world. And Simon & Schuster had to lay off uh, a large number of employees, including many editorial personnel across a variety of departments. He had the misfortune to, you know, get the axe for economic reasons. And as a result, uh, the remaining editors were overworked, and they simply had a different vision for where things were going. They had other priorities. And so the DS9 saga, as he had been developing it with this very rich, robust cast that mixed canon characters from the show with new characters that had been created for the fiction, uh, for for the literary uh, side of things, kind of fell a little bit by the wayside and we tried to pick it back up. We tried to incorporate uh, some of that uh, into uh, actually, yeah, his layoff happened, I guess in 2008, probably right after we uh, 
we had finished all the editing and production on the Destiny trilogy, but it wasn't out yet, I don't think. And uh, I think we had just finished copy edits on my original novel, The Calling, but that didn't come out until the summer of 2009, almost a year after he was laid off. But, um, you know, we, we tried to incorporate the DS9 characters into Destiny, but Destiny was set further ahead in the continuity, so we had to sort of get Marco to spill a couple of secrets. Like, well, where do you see these characters a few years down the line at this point in continuity? Where do you see those storylines going? And he didn't want to give away too much. He didn't want us to give away all of the secrets that had been in planning for DS9, because at that time he didn't know it was all going to come crashing to a halt. Um, but, you know, he gave us a sense of, well, Esri, one of the things that's been important to Esri's path uh, in the relaunch is that as she incorporates the symbiont personality uh, more effectively with her own, she starts to move away from being a counselor and she starts to embrace greater possibilities in her life, in her career, and she starts moving toward the, the command track, even in the uh, post-finale books um, that preceded Warpath. So she was already on that path toward leaving counseling, going into command. Um, now we had the minor supporting characters, people like Tarsis and whatever, who wound up being used in Destiny. Um, but then even after uh, Marco got laid off and Destiny happened and the timeline got all screwed up and uh, the editors made the decision to drag DS9 uh, post-finale books kicking and screaming uh, into current continuity by just sort of skipping over a number of years. Right. You know, that, I think one of the first books that addressed that or which followed up on that, I'm trying to remember, wasn't one of mine. My first sort of foray back into uh, where is the DS9 universe, uh, you know, after this great leap forward was my novel Zero Sum Game. And uh, Zero Sum Game sort of saw that uh, Kira, you know, had left the station. That was something that David R. George did, uh, I believe, in uh, one of his novels, either Plagues of Night, Raise the Dawn. I think he also had a another DS9-focused novel, one of his Typhon, yes, uh, Rough, Beast, Rough Beast of Empire, I believe. Yep. was very DS9-focused. So the DS9 characters got a lot of time uh, on the page, got a lot of exploration in Rough Beasts of Empire. I came back in Zero Sum Game and gave them more time uh, with specific focus on Bashir and sort of bringing Serena Douglas back into his life. Uh, and then, of course, there was also Esri uh, and Serena, not Esri and Serena, Esri and uh, mm -hmm. Bowers from the DS9 books and Tarsis from the uh, DS9 books. So the DS9 characters have had a lot of attention. They've actually been pretty well developed. Their continuing story has been explored. David R. George came back to them again in Plagues of Night. Raised the Dawn, he came back to them again for Revelation and Dust uh, with the brand new Deep Space Nine, uh, which he was integral in helping uh, conceive and uh, helping to develop. So where they are now when we find them in Ceremony of Losses is Bashir is sort of having a crisis of conscience. For a number of years, he's been sort of letting his actions in zero-sum games stew in the back of his head. And he's kind of wondering, how did I go down such a dark path? How did I let myself delude myself into thinking that was the right thing or that that was somehow morally acceptable? 
So this is weighing on him, and what's brought it to light, of course, is the tragic events in Book One of the Fall. Spoiler alert: When uh, President Nanyetabaka, the president of the Federation, is assassinated, and he is unable to save her, while well, it was partly, you know, due to the fact that he believed he was serving his president, that he let himself become a, a secret agent with a license to kill and kind of did some morally questionable things in zero-sum game. And now he's feeling like there's a need to atone, but he doesn't know how. He doesn't know what he could do. And then we bring back the Andorian reproductive crisis uh, when he gets a call for help from his friend Shar, uh, Shar Chathane, who has been for several years now back on Andor working with uh, Professor Mithrasi Jathin. They've been trying to find the cure, working first with the Arithne uh, turnkey genome and then later with the Shaddai metagenome that they got from the Tholians. Uh, and they've reached the point where they're like 99.5% of the way there, but they just can't seem to get the ball into the end zone because critical bits of data are being withheld, mostly for political reasons. And they need somebody who can get access to what they can't to finish the work they've started. They're 99.5% of the way there, but they can't fill in the last blanks. And that's where Bashir comes in. And Serena, of course, gets folded into that story as they realize the only way to get access to this classified data, which is part of Operation Vanguard's enduring legacy into the 24th century, is to enlist the aid of Section 31, which are the last people Bashir wants to go to but in this case, he's, again, willing to rationalize doing something that he thinks is morally questionable for a greater good. The difference being that in zero-sum game, he was willing to make that rationalization for the taking of life. Now he's making that rationalization in the service of preserving life. So it sort of uh, represents the culmination of a story arc for Bashir that began in zero-sum game. What I thought was really interesting in this book, too, that for the first time in a, I I think ever, Section Thirty One seems more reasonable than the president of the Federation. Well, remember that Ishan is not the president; he's well, the president he's the, pro tem. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, he's basically but, the guy who's supposed to keep the chair warm. Exactly, and yet not only is he keeping the chair warm, he's he's also trying apparently to destroy the universe, I think is is what I've got the feeling like. Well, the thing is, what you got to remember is, for instance, look at the sort of hawkish policies of someone like Kai Wynn on Bajor. Yeah, you're, tr- you're right. And what you find is that some people took entirely the wrong lesson from the Bajoran occupation. Some people uh, mm-hmm. come out of it, you know, with an understanding of the fragility of life and the need to pr- uh, pursue peace rapprochement, et cetera, et cetera. Other people come out of it with the understanding that the universe is going to hit you in the teeth unless you hit it first. You know, uh, turn the other cheek to hell with that. Punch the other guy in the nose and you won't have to get hit in the cheek at all. So Ishan is one of those guys who has come out of the occupation scarred by his experience with a very... Mm-hmm. brutal and I guess one might say pragmatic sense of real politic where he doesn't want to wait for the other guy uh, to hit him. He's going to hit first. He doesn't want to be seen as weak. 
And in fact, some of his arguments are not entirely unreasonable. He's not out to destroy the universe. For instance, his argument about why he doesn't want to, you know, do anything to help the Andorians, like, for instance, why he puts a trade embargo on them. Well, they are currently, you know, flirting with uh, the Typhon Pact, which is a major interstellar rival. If they get seduced into the Typhon Pact, that's going to put, essentially, you know, give the, uh, the rival a beachhead right on his front door. Uh, he doesn't want to, you know, hand over uh, this, you know, research that Bashir is working on with classified data, which had to be stolen from a Federation archive. This is stolen classified data, which has potentially universe-destroying capability, as we saw with Project Genesis, if it's not handled just right. And he doesn't want to give it to the Andorians because, well, what kind of message does that send? They secede, and now we try to bring them back with bribery. Mm-hmm. Well, that you might as well just hang up a, a shingle outside the you know, Palais de, de, de la Concorde that says, hey, you want to get what you want from the Federation? Secede, and then we'll bend over backwards and bribe you to come back. Mm-hmm. He's not necessarily wrong. He just doesn't want to come at this from a benevolent viewpoint. He comes at it from the viewpoint of, you wronged us, you embarrassed us, why should we help you? Come crawling back, and maybe then we'll help you. But we shouldn't be throwing candy at your feet after you just took a dump on ours. Which is funny because that, I mean, on the other side of the argument, which, you know, it's Starfleet's fault in the beginning. I mean, they're the ones who... They're the ones who withheld all this information and kept it hidden and could have been helping somebody who is a founding member of the Federation in the first place. And, you know, um, and I mean, of course, we know from Vanguard, very little people know about the information um, that's out there. And at the Um, end of Storming Heaven, that information was basically buried, except for the Project Genesis people and some Starfleet intelligence research people. But as a consequence of that, once... Project Genesis became a political hot potato, and the political imperative was there to bury anything and everything that ever had anything to do with Genesis. That included all the Shaddai research, all the metagenome data. It got buried under a layer of protocols so deep, it might as well not even have been there anymore. It's not like people are still conducting secret research into it in a little room on the moon. No, it's this stuff got basically locked in a barrel, sealed in cement in the bottom of a crater on Luna. And it's got, you know, robotic sentries around it and yada, yada, yada. It's not like we're working with it and we just, someone looked up and said, hey, you know, this this might be useful to the Andorians. Should we tell them? Nah, nah, screw the Andorians. <laughs> Nobody did that. It wasn't like it was a malicious decision to withhold something that was known to be useful or to have a practical application. It was more a case of nobody knew what was sitting in the Pandora's box in the crater. So how could they have knowingly withheld something they didn't know they had? But that's not what it looks like when you're an Andorian whose family has had its second miscarriage, your species is dying, projections are you're going to start hitting a tipping point from which mortality, you know, the rate of mortality versus the rate of fertility becomes unrecoverable, you know, within a century and a half. You don't really care about logic at that point. At that point, what you care about is that it's been revealed that this could have been very useful, and it's been sitting in a box in Starfleet's control for a hundred years. From where you're sitting, that looks like somebody screwed you. 
Well, and I thought it was really interesting as well. On top of that, you know, Isham does have some great points throughout the book that you 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 know are undeniable. And at the same time, he's he is he's yeah he's using this um, for his own gain, and it, it's it's he thinks it's going to poll well. Exactly, he's got an election coming up. Exactly, and. Um, you know, David uh, used in his book, he had the Archduke Ferdinand moment as kind of the basis for his book. Uh, when talking to Una, she kind of used Germany post-war, so World War One, World War Two Reconstruction um, phase, both the exactly. Treaty of Versailles Germany uh, and then the um, post-World War Two uh, uh, West Germany, East, yes. West, East Germany. And so... Um, as as I saw in in their books, those things uh, I, I felt like I saw a few in yours. Can you talk about just some of those real world things that we've been facing, um, uh, or have faced in our our history that you used as as kind of a basis for uh, what you kind of laid out in a ceremony of losses? Well, a ceremony of losses began pretty much with uh, a suggestion from my editor Margaret Clark. I was looking for what the story was going to be about. She knew she wanted a five-book miniseries. She knew she wanted me as part of it, most likely with uh, one of the middle chapters. And at one point I came to her and I said, look, I honestly have no idea what I'm supposed to write about. I, I know that David has the kickoff. I know he gets to assassinate the president and have all the fallout from that. Una wants to do something with Cardassian politics because that's Una. That's what she does. James, of course, is going to do his, you know, military commando thriller because that's what James does. And Dayton, you've got, you know, batting cleanup or mop-up as the case may be. Everybody else seems to have a pretty clear idea of what their story is about. Dayton has to pull all the threads together, resolve the plot, reveal, you know, the hidden motives and, and you know, have the heroes save the day. I said, what am I doing? What's my story? And that was when Margaret said, well... How about you, you know, wrap up the Andorian uh, fertility crisis once and for all? Tie it off with a bow and, and deal with it and let Bashir be the hero. I'm like, that's good. And as I began thinking about it, I began seeing the possibility of Bashir, who had gone down to a very dark place in Zero Sum Game, being able to take a journey of redemption as a character. And I guess once I began looking into the various themes and backstory elements uh, in particular, the inclusion of the Shaddai metagenome data from the Vanguard saga. Some of the themes that informed Vanguard got brought to the fore and carried forward into a ceremony of losses, those being in particular the theme of where is the balance between the need for secrecy by our government and the need for transparency in our government? Uh, at what point does the military's need for operational security trump our right to know what people are doing in our name, uh, particularly the people who wear our uniform. So there's this struggle between people who want to keep secrets and people who want information to be free. Um, and then some of the other things that obviously began to come out as I was working on it. Uh, I wrote the book and the book was finished before the Eric Snowden NSA information scandal broke. So the book was written before that happened, and yet there are many parallels to that. But one could just as easily draw similar parallels uh, in the exposure of classified information that's been suppressed to Julian Assange and the rise of WikiLeaks uh, over the past decade. So I think there was some of that involved. 
And then uh, in terms of the Andorian political struggles that are going on between the Trishaya, who are very much a conservative, hard-right, uh, religiously-driven ideological party, uh, they're driven pretty much by a dislike or a distrust of the science that wants to meddle with the Andorian genome in the name of saving the Andorian people. Um, and they're driven by, you know, religious, you know, considerations such as, well, it, you know, we are as Uzave the Infinite made us, we should not be remade in the vision uh, of mere people. And then you got the scientists who say, well, Uzave gave us the insight and the ability to change ourselves if we needed to. Why would he give us the talent if he didn't mean for us to use it? So you've got, you know, these sort of religious arguments going on, and uh, you've got a very small, vocal, strident, hostile, especially hostile to technology, hostile to authority uh, faction that takes over the Andorian government. And that's very plausible because the Andorian government is set up in a parliamentary system whereby if you can get like even a small but vocal minority such as the Trishaya and they can find ideological shared purpose with uh, other similarly aligned groups such as the True Heirs of Andor, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and enough of them are willing to band together, cast a vote of no confidence in the government, dissolve the government, and then hold a vote and form a new governing coalition amongst themselves, then a government can rise and fall literally in a matter of hours. Uh, you know, it's happened in places like Britain, it's happened in places like Canada, uh, Australia over the years, you know, where even without the need for new elections, simply because of changes in political alignment and changes in political alliance between parties and different coalitions within uh, individual parties, governments get dissolved and then new governments take their place and suddenly someone who was prime minister today is just a member of parliament tomorrow. So that's what I was sort of seeing was this very volatile political environment where people are struggling tooth and nail to hang on to the last shreds of power uh, on Andor and they're doing it by any means possible and if that means making science the villain even if science is the one thing that can save their ass then that's what they've got to do until they can be sure they've solidified their position uh, and, and you know, got a secure coalition they don't want to let the situation unfold in a way that would give credit to their political opponents um, which is sort of again you know, I guess uh, not coincidentally, probably a parallel for the kind of obstructionism that seems to plague the United States Senate, where you've got essentially no movement at all because whichever party is out of power seems to spend all its time merely gumming up the gears of yeah, right. government rather than coming up with alternative ideas. It seems like whoever is out of power is simply there to gum up the works. So hmm. it's sort of a commentary on that as well. One of the things too, David, and in all of that, and and what I really saw kind of as as this thread, is that people keep rejecting doing the right thing, um, and keep telling themselves throughout the the book that the world is not black and white. Um, and even Ezri says this in an argument she has with Bashir. You know, she says everything you uh, with you has an extreme, doesn't it, Julian? Heroes, villains, good and evil, right and wrong, never any room in your world for uh, subtlety or nuance, is there? And yet, even as she's saying those words, they feel so false coming from her. 
she knows she's full of it. Right. And and not only that, but but the idea she's fighting against is something that I mean, she's fighting against saving a race like it's the right thing to do. And Bashir keeps saying that and he keeps being able to convince the right people that it is the right thing to do enough to be able to and spoilers to get it done in the end. Um, and in, even Esri comes around to his side. But I was I was just struck by in the book the way that everyone in a political place doesn't care about the people that they represent doesn't really care about anything else. All they seem to care about is power, which if you're not using your power to help other people, what's the point of having the power? Um, if there's nobody really to rule, um, you know, like the Andorians, if there's nobody left, it doesn't matter. You know, it, it, we're, you're all dead. Um, and, and so I just thought that was that was watching through was so uh, reading through was so interesting seeing this play through is that there is a time when you know we know it's right and we do it no matter what the consequence because it's the right thing to do and uh, a car even realizing this throughout the book and finally coming to his point at the end of of knowing that he's going to have to take on this proton president yeah Eckhart realizes he's as he puts it beset by serpents on all sides yeah beautiful line <laughs> yeah his own junior officers are you know acting in insubordinate ways they're reporting directly to the palais he's not really sure who to trust who not to trust and so he's left thinking i have to bring in somebody untainted somebody who is above mm. this political muck to be my right hand and that's where that's what's going to happen in book four yeah, which is fantastic because, as we know, it, it's going to be Riker. And uh, talk about a, a good guy who who definitely has an idea of what right and wrong is and not afraid to go with it. Um, mm-hmm. Never afraid to stand so, up to power either. Exactly, which is, I mean, well, and he learned from, I mean, standing up for card is not the easiest thing to do. But when you have, when you have to learn to do that, you can pretty much, I think, stand up to anybody. Well, I really liked, David, uh, the uh, Andorian proverb that you had that you the, the name of the book comes from. And it said, um, the path of light can only be found by those who brave the road of storms and weather its ceremony of losses. And um, I, I loved this saying because it really captured so well, I think, just where the Federation is. Um, they have spent, you know, the last 10 years in war after war and it's really taken its toll and it's only been somebody like Bako who's done her best to be able to keep that together and rise above and try to do what's right even when it isn't easy now she made some mistakes herself but on a whole her idea was to stay on this path of light but I seem like she, even when she had to stray into the shadow to do it I mean the rise of the Typhon Pact can be traced back to the fact that it was Indirectly, her idea, she just didn't realize it at the time, when she forced everybody to band together in the Destiny trilogy to go to the Azure Nebula and make kind of a skirmish line to stand up against what they thought was going to be an incoming Borg force of dozens of cubes. And she marshaled, you know, forces from all of her uh, interstellar neighbors. Well, that didn't work out so well, but what some of them, such as the Gorn and Zenkethi and others figured out was, well, you know, Part of what makes the Federation so strong is it's got a lot of worlds. They all pull together. If we pull together, instead of being a bunch of second-rate powers who keep getting bullied by the Federation, together we have just as much or more combined territory and resources and people 
we could stand up to them if we were united the way they are. But we don't have to make our union work the same way theirs does. To get in the Federation, you have to make your ideals and values and culture align with theirs. What if we just said you can keep your culture and value but stand shoulder to shoulder with others who maybe see things differently but also want to be free? In which respect, the Typhon Pact is not per se an evil empire. It's simply a different approach to setting up a coalition in interstellar space among people of different species, different ideologies, different backgrounds. Um, So they're not necessarily evil. They're just coming at the idea of uh, joining together in a very different way. So that kind of made that fun. But yeah, Bako inadvertently made that happen by showing them that they could do it. Um, but the to bring it back around to what you mentioned in the uh, the proverb, the Andorian proverb uh, about weathering the ceremony of losses, it really does come down to the notion that until you're willing to give up certain things or make certain sacrifices, you don't really uh, understand enlightenment or you, you, you don't really get to walk free and unburdened until you're willing to sacrifice some things along the way. And in Bashir's case, that's what come that's what it comes down to at the end. When sitting in, you know, a concrete or thermocrete cell inside an asteroid with no name, maybe a numerical designation in a star system that probably has no name but a numerical designation. You would think that this would be the most oppressive, lonely, awful moment of his life, and yet he feels unburdened. He feels, as he puts it, free. Because freedom is not necessarily about incarceration versus uh, lack thereof, but it's more about how we perceive ourselves and, and you know how, our relationship with the universe. He has freed himself from his own shackles of guilt. Uh, he has absolved his conscience. He has as he, you know, one might put it in biblical terms, he has fought the good fight, he has kept mm. the faith. Yeah. And now, even though they put him in a cell, they can't take away from him the calm and uh, the assurance that he has that he knows he is righteous, that he has done right. There's a, uh, on TV, on the TV Tropes Wiki, there's a category which somebody very wisely applied uh, to Ceremony of Losses, which is that what Bashir is struggling with is the question of whether to be lawful or to be good. Mm-hmm. Laws are not inherently good or evil, but you know they, they are what they are. Sometimes it comes down to interpretation. Some laws are unjust. Some laws are bad laws. And Bashir comes down to a point where, faced with his you know, duty, his sworn duty, his oath, his legal obligation when that comes up against his moral obligation as a doctor, as a healer, as a sentient being, he weighs the two and must make the choice. Will I be lawful or will I be good? Some people faced with that put aside morals and say, the law is more important. You know, without law, there is chaos, you know, and you see Esri struggling with that to a certain degree before she also follows Bashir's choice. Bashir clearly decides to be good. He's tried being lawful, and he hasn't been happy with it. Now he's going to try being good. And I think that that's, uh, you know, his example is what leads Esri down the same path. Definitely. Um, well, and it, it's it's such a, uh, you know, I think a, a truth across the world is, is that, you know, suffering, 
we face suffering in our lives, it, it is a, a refining fire, and it either crushes us and, and, and makes us weak and um, destroys us, or it makes us stronger, as the, as the proverb says um, from Andor here. You, you know, you can get to that path of light, but you're going to have to brave the storms to get there. Uh, and you're also going to have to face losses. And I, I feel like it really summed up, too, if, if the Federation is in this tipping point. You know, they can go down to the path of light, or they can descend in darkness. Um, and yeah, that was intentional into darkness. So, um, mm-hmm. and so I, I thought that that was really interesting, um, and, and a really great theme to come out of the book is this idea of where the Federation is at this exact moment. Um, you're in your darkest hour, your president's been assassinated. Everything seems to be going wrong. Do you stick to what makes you the Federation, which is really your morals, not just your laws, or do you send into you know, the darkness of saying we're, we're going to make might make right. We're going to do all those things that we know aren't the correct way to go. So, um, really, uh, I think a, a well done, um, book and, and it brings out a lot of things. I think as we've been talking, you know, there's a lot in here that when you're reading it, it kind of slaps you in the face, honestly, as an American, it, guys wake up you know stop fighting over politics and do what's right for the people that you represent i don't care what side you're on the you know defense doesn't matter so uh it, it, i really like that about this book i noticed too david you threw in some fantastic easter eggs for um some some great shows mm-hmm. out there uh pinky in the brain uh, i noticed a star wars reference in there um any others that i missed or did you did you because you you what is some lost. great humor yeah lost yes james bond yep there's a, yep. and there's always a reference to rush somewhere okay nice nice probably in a song lyric or song title worked into dialogue or description or something uh but inevitably there's a rush reference in there oh somewhere. that's great uh, um, I forget what what was the Star Wars reference. Um, I noticed that uh, you put in there, and I don't know if it was intentional, but you said delusions of grandeur, and it always makes me think of the uh, Return of the Jedi. I, you know, I'm out of it for a while, and everybody gets delusions of grandeur, uh, and so <laughs> yeah, um, that's possible. That may have been that may have been unintentional. It may yeah. have been intentional. I, I, I like I said, I, I've told people before. I drink heavily when I write. So <laughs> sometimes I might have meant it at the time, and then later I forget, and I go, "Oh, I wrote that." Okay, yes. I wrote that. I think Matthew is disappointed that nowhere in the book does anyone say we're going on an adventure. <laughs> yeah, no, no Hobbit references, no Alon Z. But, uh, but yeah, I did. I did love you know, and the she asks you know, so what are we going to do today, Professor? The same thing we do every day, Shar. Try to, to save, save the, world. the world. That's right. So, actually, one of my favorite lines in the book is near the end when Ezri has finally come around and decided <laughs> yes. to help Bashir, and she's putting a phaser in his hand, and uh, he's saying, "You know, uh, you keep, you know, you keep this up. I might fall in love with you all over again." She hands him a phaser, and she goes, "Really, Julian? I'm here to save your ass. Is this uh, any time to start threatening me?" <laughs> yes, yes. I, uh, which I do have to say, and I, that's something I was going to ask you about is is that. Um, you know, we, we know, um, that he's with Serena and uh, I think he was just being yeah his jokey self. Yeah. yeah it, he, he was speaking lightly in the moment. It's not meant yeah. to imply that he's going to try and get back together with Esri. He and Esri had okay, their time. Good. They didn't work out. Their relationship 
in the books was ended before I came along. Long right. before I got involved in writing the DS9 characters in the books, their relationship was already over. So I did not break them up. I simply continued <laughs> with the editorial directive I was given. Uh, I made the choice to put them back together with Serena. I know some people mm-hmm. haven't necessarily, some readers have not necessarily agreed with that choice. Too bad. Uh, I get to write the books. I say he's with Serena. <laughs> I rewatched the app, and you know he said in the app, mm-hmm. "This is the woman I've waited my whole yeah, right. life to find." He wasn't kidding. He was head over heels for this girl, and he let her go because he realized she's not ready to be with someone like me yet, and it's not fair of me to keep her here when she needs to find her own way. It was the case of let them, you know, if you love someone, set them free, and. My theory was, well, if he gave her enough time and enough space, she would come back. Yeah. And I made that choice to bring her back to him and put the two of them together in zero-sum game. I stand by it. I know that there has been a sense of some inconsistency. Some people can't figure out whether she's a good character or she's an evil character who's manipulating Bashir. I think part of the problem is that... uh, there seem to have been some fundamental miscommunications at some stage between myself and David R. George, because he's done the bulk of the scenes involving Serena that I haven't written. So basically anytime someone's been writing Serena who isn't me, it's him. And I think even though he and I talked about it and I thought we understood where we were coming from, um, I think some people have intuited or uh, have inferred from things that he's written either in Serena's point of view or about Serena from other people's point of view, that she is a, a Section 31 agent, uh, that her claims to be working against Section 31 are hokum and that she's actually trying to deceive Bashir or whatever. And if you read Serena, you know, in the stories when I write her, it's very clear, no, no, that's not what she's doing hmm. that's not what it's about um granted i left it kind of open-ended at the end of section uh, at the end of zero-sum game because i wanted it to be the surprise reveal of serena reporting to a section 31 handler and that was sort of a fun bit where lahan who's this sort of vulcan section 31 dominatrix slash you know agent handler uh who i conceived of back in God, my actually my first uh, full-length paperback novel, Time to Kill, back in uh, 2003, 2004. Um, Lahan realizes, you know, Sloan was wrong. The way to get to Bashir is not to appeal to his sense of duty or his sense of adventure. He's a romantic. Yeah. And she says to Serena, make him love you, and then we'll have him. The thing is, the way that scene is written, I'm not saying whether Serena is actually in league with Lahan or just letting Lahan think that she is. And then I realized, you know, from things I was hearing from other people and uh, feedback I was getting, because then David R. George took the ball and ran with it in, I think, something like three or four books. I mean, he got to deal with it in Rough Beasts, uh, Raise the Plagues of Night, Raise the Dawn, and Revelation and Dust. And there seemed to be some confusion. So I decided to make it absolutely completely totally explicitly clear in ceremony of losses this is where i'm coming from with serena this is her point of view this is who she is and uh i'm looking forward to continuing that in fact in a couple of weeks once i finish with turkey day and buying christmas gifts and getting my holidays sorted out 
the next manuscript I go to work on, hopefully starting on December 2nd, is Section 31, Disavowed. And that's going to be a direct sequel to Ceremony of Lost. Excellent. Well, and I'm excited about that because, um, one, I, I, I loved what you did there. I was glad for the clarification on their relationship. And I also was really glad to see that you put Bashir and Esri together and gave them a really, I think, um, binding friendship at this point. Like, they, for everything that they've been through now, I feel like they finally understand each other and they're finally past a lot of things. And two, I also really liked what you did with Esri because I feel like you finally helped create her own person um, fully. Like, she's Esri now, Esri Dax. She is who she's going to be. Um, I, I felt like she finally came into that when she made that decision to follow Bashir, um, th- that she was going to be a culmination of all of the hosts and Esri, and part of that meant following her conscience, which was telling her, and, and I really appreciated that. So um, anything else that you, you're going to follow up Section 31, Disavowed? I, I take it it's going to be about Esri and um, Serena and Bashir and what happens next to those guys? Um, I'd have to double-check the outline. I, I don't think I have any plan to incorporate uh, Esri into Disavowed. Okay. Then again, I could be misremembering. I turned in that outline three months ago, and... I haven't looked at it since because I've been writing Seekers, uh, book one. And so all of my thoughts up until about an hour ago have been locked into the 23rd century. Um, that's a good question. I suppose I, I've got it right in front of me here. I, 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 guess <laughs> awesome. I, could, I guess I could just look at it and see if I can open it without crashing the computer <laughs> and accidentally terminating our interview. <laughs> <laughs> If, uh, if this interview suddenly comes to a screeching halt, uh, I apologize, and you'll know why. Um, I'm watching the Word file open on the... We need some book search music. Exciting. That's what we need for the show that we can queue up. Let's see here. I guess I could just do a search for uh, Esri. Let's see. If her name shows up, then I'll know she's in the story somewhere. Esri find um well no there's a reference to her but no she's not actually in okay. the book no so it's it's really uh just uh Bashir Serena and various nefarious powers okay. uh and although I won't say which one I will say it does include some connections uh to at least one other previous novel I've written but it won't be oh, an obvious one good well, uh, I'm excited about it, and so now I'm I'm wondering in my brain, okay, what in the world happened to Esri? Because if we know where Bashir went, hopefully somebody will be following up with her. Well, there's two books left in the fall. That's true. You're right. You're right. And so I, I just got to be patient. <laughs> in fact, I will be, uh, I'm not going to say how or what, I will say that folks who are, who get to the end of a ceremony of losses and go, ah, damn you, Mac! Well, you don't have to wait long. It's only going to be another week or so. Uh, in fact, less than that. It's going to be six days until the release of The Poison Chalice by James Swallow. You're going to get some resolution and closure uh, on the Bashir storyline. You're going to find out 
what happens to him sitting in his little rock. You're going to get some closure on the Ezri Dax storyline. Excellent. And then uh, just a month later after that, you're going to have Peaceable Kingdoms by Dayton Ward, and you're definitely going to have resolution for these characters. These storylines will come around. Uh, some people will come out of this better than others. Some will come out worse. Um, status quo will be sort of kicked over a little bit, but we're not burning down the universe. And the stories will continue to go on, and these characters will go on, and mm-hmm. for the foreseeable literary future, the continuity will go on. Well, David, I, I was just going to say, I mean, we got to the end of a David Mack book and billions of people <laughs> didn't die. Actually, you saved billions of people. What Your happened? Universe back. Were you were you not drinking <laughs> enough? Or the angel of death taketh, the angel of death giveth back. <laughs> oh goodness! It, well, I, maybe it was that you you knew this book was going to be coming out by Thanksgiving, and you wanted to make people thankful that the Andorians were saved instead of that they all died. It could be. I mean, the thing is, uh, it, it doesn't. I, I don't have to slaughter people by the billions in every book. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's nice to throw a change-up pitch once in a while. I loved it. I loved it. Well, David, I have to. I do have to say, this was, I think, the perfect middle book because it was such a thriller. There is so much going on, in, and and the fact that from the page one to the to the uh, the end, the last page. You really are on a roller coaster ride, and um, you set up so many great things, of, and that we can kind of see coming in the future. But you tell such a great story here. I had a blast reading it, and again, as we talked about it, there's a lot in here that um, it, it makes you think. So, I mean, it's not just check your brain at the door. Please don't when you read this book, because I, I think people really need to think long and hard about some of the things that you, you put in this book. Um, so I, I really appreciated that um, because it makes for great lit. Um, Una did it in her book, and you did it in your book. It, it's fantastic. Um, we have talked a little bit about the Seekers. I want to give you a place now to be able to talk about you know what you're working on, what's coming up next for you. Um, this is your place to just um, selfless promotion right here. Self-promotion. Shameless self-promo. That's right. Shameless self-promo. Go for it. Let's see. Uh, as you've mentioned, Star Trek Seekers. It's not The Seekers, it's just Star Trek, colon, Seekers. And that's coming out, uh, the first book, in August of 2014. And although the original plan was just to have them be numbered with no titles, sort of in the style of the old James Blish anthologies, the publisher insisted that we put titles on them because otherwise the great artificial intelligence mega brain that drives their database and the retail outlets and the book scan, whatever, would just get too confused. So we had to put numbers on them and this was a battle we couldn't win. So we, we put titles on them. Book one is going to be called second nature and book two will be called point of divergence. And that's by Dayton Ward and Kevin Delmore. That'll be out in September of 2014. So the two books come out, Boom, boom, uh, right one after the other. And that's good because it's a two-part story. So book one is going to end with to be continued in Star Trek Seekers 2, Point of Divergence. So get ready for uh, a fun little roller coaster ride cliffhanger story there. And that's uh, basically, uh, Seekers is a sequel to the Star Trek Vanguard saga. So it's set during the same era. It begins right about the point where Star Trek, the original series, ends. It's going to follow... Two starship crews, the Sagittarius, which is 
a little scout ship, an Archer class scout with a very weird, idiosyncratic, quirky crew of 14 people. And then you've got the Endeavor, which is a big Constitution class Enterprise type ship with 438 people aboard. So you've got two very different types of ships that carry out very different kinds of missions, but they're out there exploring together. Uh, sometimes they split up, sometimes they team up. The first two books are going to involve a team-up, um, well, maybe more of a handoff, but it's a handoff slash pseudo team-up. Um, we're hoping that fans will dig it and that we'll get to continue it and do more stories in the Seekers line. Um, and part of what really has us excited about it is that it started with a series of retro-style faux book covers created by a fan artist named Rob Caswell. Mm-hmm. He used the... Sagittarius starship design from Vanguard, which was designed by uh, Maseo Okazaki. And he took a wireframe and a mesh and a skin or whatever, and he started using the Sagittarius ship in these very painterly-looking retro-style covers that looked like the old James Blish uh, Star Trek anthologies from the 1970s. And he called that series The Seekers. Uh, Mm. and he postulated that there was an alternate universe where the Seekers was a spin-off series from Star Trek and uh, that, you know, a science fiction author named Frederick Brown did the, uh, the novelizations and these were the covers and it, uh, it struck my fancy and made me nostalgic for the old Blish anthologies, which were kind of my Star Trek lit gateway drug when I was about six or seven years old. And uh, Dayton Ward, my you know conspirator in literary crime, he <laughs> has much the same me- memory and uh, fondness for those old Blish tomes. So when he saw those covers, he loved them as much as I did. And uh, a while back, we were thinking, you know, just after the Vanguard series came to a close, we were having a meeting. You know, we were hanging out in Kansas City and saying, you know, what are we going to work on next? What are we going to do? And we were looking at the covers on, I think, one of our phones or something. And we suddenly realized, one of us said to the other, I don't remember who said it to who, one of us said, this, we should do this, Hmm. exactly this. And then we thought about it, we talked to Kevin Delmore, and we all agreed, yeah, we should do this. So we pitched it to the editors and the licensor. They gave us uh, a green light. They were really excited for it. And then eventually we got in touch with uh, Rob Caswell. And you know, once the contracts were signed and we were going forward, we got in touch with him. So we wanted to make sure he heard it from us before he saw it in like fan press right. or something. And uh, we managed to bring him aboard to do the cover art for the series in that same retro style. So we're going to have this very retro look and feel for the book, mm. very 1970s. Um, and to that end, we're trying to craft stories that are shorter, a little bit shorter, a little bit faster paced, mm-hmm. light, fast, you know, uh, quick on their feet, uh, strange new worlds, strange life forms, adventures, Klingons, uh, phasers, and, uh, and running around and getting into trouble and helping people and doing some good, that kind of thing. Uh, instead of the, the dark, cynical politics of Vanguard, we wanted to get back to work on a 23rd century series that was really just about that golden age of exploration for Starfleet, Mm. that going out into the unknown, into the final frontier, and just seeing what's out there. So that's what Star Trek Seekers is about. 
and that's going to be uh, premiering this coming summer, August and September of 2014. Uh, the first book, I'm hoping to premiere that at a convention called Shoreleaf in the Baltimore area. That'll be the first weekend in August, and uh, I'm hoping to, you know, hopefully the book will make a big splash there, because that was where we premiered Vanguard back in 2005. So I'm looking uh, to parlay the same sort of love for Star Trek literature that is uh, such a key element of Shore Leave into the launch of Seekers. And then sometime around this time next year, uh, I think maybe November 2014, I thought it was December, but now I'm starting to think it might be November. Uh, around then is when Section 31 Disavowed should be coming out. Excellent. Uh, so that, that's my current understanding. That could change. That's all tentative and subject to change. Uh, after that, I have two more Star Trek books under contract, but it's not decided yet what they're going to be. I suspect one of them will probably be another Seekers book if the first two do well. Um, otherwise, it could turn out to be just about anything. I, I might just try to do another Seekers book and another Section 31 book, depending on how the next two books are received. Uh, but before I get started on those two or even figure out what those last two books on my contract are, uh, I have an original novel that I'm going to start working on. I've, I've got the outline sorted out. I've spent months researching and outlining and doing story development and uh, building timelines and character profiles and all that wonderful world-building stuff that goes on behind the scenes and then has to be forgotten about and just be for my benefit. Um, but I've got an original novel that I'm really excited to write that I'm hoping I will get to start working on sometime in February or March. Hopefully that'll find a good home, and maybe sometime next spring or summer I'll actually be able to tell people about it. Any uh, any tidbits at all about kind of the genre you're going for and, and that kind of stuff? Um, I guess it's sort of a mashup of uh, secret history and urban fantasy. Okay. Um, you know, basically World War II and magic. Oh, okay. Awesome. Well, David, I love having you on, and I thank you so much for taking your time out to talk with us. Um, as I said to everybody, I, I hope that, one, they've been reading The Fall. Two, if you haven't read David's book, you need to go out and get it and read it, because if you've been listening to this, we just spoil the thing <laughs> rotten, so you are screwed. You are um, a fool! You fool! Yeah, you are a fool. <laughs> and... Uh, Thirdly, uh, again, it, it's always a pleasure to have you on, and um, I, I really do thank you for just taking out your time on a Wednesday night to, to talk to us about the book. And oh, that. it's a it's a pleasure to be here. Besides, my wife took over the living room. She and her gal pals are out there having sewing night, which is really just a bunch of gals sitting around drinking wine and Prosecco and talking about stuff and then giving me the stink eye whenever I hear the stuff out of my man cave. So uh, really, oh. this just gave me something to do other than cruise the internet. You know, Awesome. So, hey, you, you guys you know, came to my rescue. Oh, good. <laughs> well, we'll do, we do what we can. Well, thank you so much again, David. It's been a pleasure, and uh, I hope you have a great evening. It's my pleasure uh, talking to you guys. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks a lot, David. Well, Matthew, again, as we just said, I'm so glad that David was able to take some time out for us tonight. I don't know why talking to us is more interesting than sewing with, <laughs> with all the ladies there, but I'm glad that he did decide to talk to us about the book tonight because it's just a lot of really great information there. Yeah, I mean, David is is just fantastic, and, and this book was great. I love that we got a lot of the background for what he was thinking about the characters and where he was going with the story and, and all of that. 
And it, it just is so much fun to kind of be able to get in there and pick the author's brain about um, the the process of writing. And, and especially with this, you know, having the big um, group um, write together and, and what that's like for them and, you know, kind of being stuck in the middle as David has, you, you could be lackluster. And yet this book is anything but. And so I, I just want to reiterate that again, guys, if you're not reading The Fall, if you haven't been, if you've been putting it off, man, you will fly through these books. And by the time you get to the end of David's, you are going to be clamoring for James's book because you're going to want the the resolution to some of this stuff. Um, but yeah, great stuff. Well, it is great that we were able to dig into a ceremony of losses with David today, but it's not the only thing we've been talking about here on the network this week. So here are some other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. TOS Remastered with Dave Rossi. We took one day and we all went down in front of a green screen. I, uh, I had a Captain Kirk shirt on. I don't remember where I got it from. Oh, yes, I do. My closet. Earl Grey. Ensign Row Commentary. Here we have someone who is kind of bucking authority and is kind of trying to be, to go against the grain, but she, she does it in a way that shows that she has some sort of depth of character. The Orb. His Way Commentary. I love that he says, what, what does fun have to do with Major Kira and James Darren's <laughs> What what do you mean? What is fun? Uh, come on, face palm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The ready room. The catwalk. But this was a really his trainer Scott Rowe was talking about in the interview I did with him back in the day. How this was a hard show because normally when they had Porthos, it was Scott and Porthos working, and uh, maybe one other character or two other characters. And these, if you watch how Porthos was in this show. They kind of had him in the quarters with Scott, and I watched most of the show. I didn't see the last nth degree of it. But most of the time, they would, they would do stuff with him, like peeking out of a bulkhead and, and all that. To the journey! USS Voyager. If it was, like, really blooming with color, you're like, oh, they're going really fast or something's happening. Like, you could... Yeah, Excitement! Like, it was instantly... You, yeah, <laughs> you instantly knew exactly what was going on. And if Q Jr. is on board, it becomes a disco. Commentary, Trek Stars. Harlan Ellison. Harlan Ellison is a crazy person because only a crazy person could come up with such an amazing name for a sci-fi drug. Come on, that's so much better than bath salts. Why don't we call them the jewels of sound? Warp 5. Trip Tucker. You know, they're not really career Starfleet people. Even though Trip has had a career in Starfleet, he's an engineer, you know, and, and that's, that's what he does and that's what he loves. And so all this other stuff's really new to him. Literary Treks. The best of Klingons. We haven't talked about yet, Chris, but there is one Klingon in here that is not like the other. That's right. One of these Klingons is not not like like the the other. other. (laughs) One of these Klingons doesn't belong. One of these Klingons is a friend of the Federation. (laughs) One of these Klingons and Bryce will get along. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, this show has gone off the rails. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and get your daily Trek Talk fix. We have new shows for you every day of the week. And some days we even have two shows for you. And you'll find them in a variety of places, including iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Windows Phone, Xbox, Zune. You can download or stream from the website. So go check out all the shows, whether you're looking for talk about a series, a character, or even the creative work beyond Star Trek. We have it all for you here on Trek FM. 
And Matthew, let's tell everyone where to find us if they want to share their thoughts on a ceremony of losses or the fall or anything we talked about in news today. Maybe that really, really interesting Have Fun with Kirk and Spock book. <laughs> you can go to our website at trek.fm slash contact. There's a form there. Choose to send to a show and choose Literary Treks, and that will come to us by email. You can also send us a voicemail through the website, or you can go to our forums at trek.fm slash forums to talk to us and other listeners. In social media, you'll find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm, and you'll find us on Twitter, where we're always tweeting away about Star Trek under username trek.fm. Now, Matthew, when you're not, you know, sitting there digging into the fall, where can people find you? Well, Chris, you can find me on uh, Twitter at MattRushing02, still in that Doctor Who rewatch. So uh, I do apologize to uh, the Star Trek fans because there isn't as much Star Trek on there right now as there is the Who. Um, But I'll be done soon. So, um, you know, we'll be back to a more regularly scheduled program there. Now, Chris, um, when you're not just hanging out uh, in sewing clubs and and, and talking about <laughs> uh, things with uh, your your lady friends, where can we find you? I'll be, I'll be like David was. I'll be in my man cave, <laughs> watching college football and uh, and watching Star Trek and such. But no, you can also find me in social media if you'd like to chat. My username on Twitter is C Brian Jones. That's the letter C and Brian with a Y. You can find me pretty much everywhere in social media under that same username and on my personal website at cbrianjones.com. And then elsewhere on the network, Matthew, of course, we also do the orb together where we talk exclusively about Deep Space Nine. I do Warp 5 with Kate Walsh where we talk about Enterprise exclusively. And then every week you'll find me with hosts from all around the network on our big news and discussion show, The Ready Room, where we talk about all five of the live action Star Trek series, as well as special topics. And uh, lastly, one more thing. Gosh, I'm everywhere, I guess. I have my own interview show called Matter Stream, where I talk to actors and writers and scientists and people like that about things generally loosely associated with Star Trek. And on the latest episode, I talked to Armin Shimmerman about his new project. So check that out over at trek.fm slash ms. Also, Matthew, before we let everyone go, we'd like to ask you again to support our sponsor for this week's show. Your support of our sponsors helps us to bring literary treks to you each week. And of course, there's Squarespace, the web's best hosting in CMS, that makes it easy for you to create your own website, blog, portfolio, or an online store. You can get 10% off your purchase at Squarespace by using offer code TREK11. So go check them out now. The easiest way you'll find anywhere to create your own space online. Again, that's at squarespace.com. And we really thank Squarespace for their support of literary treks. And also there's audible.com. Audible is the premier source for audiobooks with more than 150,000 titles to choose from. And there are new titles coming each week from classics to current bestsellers, or even some of the most famous Star Trek books like Prime Directive Federation and Spock's World. Audible has something for everyone. And you know, Matthew, it's too bad they're not doing the fall because this would be the perfect series to have an audible format, especially unabridged narrated by the author. Can you imagine David Mack reading the book? I think that would be fantastic. Man, it would be so good. I, I am really disappointed that uh, 
you know, listeners are not getting an opportunity to to hear these in audio form. Um, you know, even just read by the author, you don't have to have crazy sound effects. It doesn't have to be a huge production. Just make it great audio quality and and put this out there because a lot more people, I think, would would be consuming Trek books if they could get it in an audio format, and especially with Audible. Most definitely. So even though the fall is not going to be available in audio format. A great way to show that we want this stuff is to support audiobooks. And there are many, many Star Trek books available on Audible, as well as every genre, science fiction, thrillers, uh, current releases, whatever you're looking for, chances are they have it there on Audible. So go try it. As a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with a 30-day trial to see how great Audible is. So give it a try today. Catch up on all those classic books that you haven't read yet or all those new releases that you want to read. Go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And we really thank Audible for their support of Literary Treks and the network. And lastly, there's one more way you can directly help us keep literary treks coming to you each week, and that is by adopting some aliens. These are original illustrations by Tobu Ushi, who does most of the artwork that you see on our website. They're available as badges and art prints, and you can mix and match, choose which ones you want in which format. And there are different levels of contributions for you to choose from as well. And Matthew, we'd like to take a moment to thank some of our most recent contributors to the network. We'd like to thank Mike Crate, Gary Lom, Daniel Handlin, Hans Liebetzetter, and also we had a great anonymous donor who made a really, really generous contribution to the network in honor of the 100th episode of Trek News and Views, as well as the 50th episode of To the Journey. So we really thank everyone who's contributed. You really do help us pay for the costs of production, hosting, and bandwidth that's needed to bring all of our shows to you every week. So go over to trek.fm slash donate, check out those aliens, and you can help us keep the network going and bringing you all of our great book talk every week. Well, thank you everyone for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. What do you call that light reading? To each his own, number one.